Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm Doug Sweeney, co-host of the Beeson Podcast. This week on the podcast, we continue our greatest hits by playing a conversation with Archbishop George Carey, who was on the show in 2016. Lord George Carey was the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1991 until 2002. In his conversation with my predecessor, Dr. Timothy George, he talks about the Anglican Communion, his call to ministry, and his ministry as the Archbishop of Canterbury. We hope you enjoy listening to this episode from our podcast archives with Lord George Carey. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, I'm delighted today to welcome a very special guest to our school and to this podcast. He is the 103rd Archbishop of Canterbury, Lord Carey of Clifton. Welcome to Beeson and to our podcast together. Thank you, Dr. George. It's a great joy to be here. I've heard a lot about Beeson Divinity School, and so here I am at last. So uh, thank you for the invitation. And we look forward to hearing you preach in our chapel a little later today, but we just wanted to have a conversation with yeah. you. And I began to, uh, by asking you to tell us about uh, your own background, how you came to faith in Christ. Yeah, it's a rather un- unusual story. I was born in the East End of London. That makes me a true Cockney. Um, <laughs> actually, up up the road, Thomas Beckett had been born a few centuries ago. Of yes. Course. So it's it's an area, London life. Uh, I was born there, bombed out of the war, um, bombed out, I should say, about um, 1939. We were not in the house at the time, but German bombers came down in the Blitz. We were evacuated um, several times to Salisbury area, Wiltshire in England. My family were not churchgoers at that particular time, um, although actually they were very sympathetic. If anyone were to say to my mother and father, you're not a Christian, they would have actually denied it, you know, very vociferously, actually. But I grew up as a thinking young man, wondering if there was a God, and so on. The war years, in a sense, I think probably scarred me as well as many, many people of my generation, actually. So we were evacuated, came back into London in 1945, and then suddenly I started going to church. Uh, My brother, Bob, uh, introduced me, went along to the church, and I was still thinking very, very much about faith and, and so on. And suddenly I remember it was May 1953. It must have been about 16 or a half, something like that. Rather like John Wesley, my heart was strangely warmed. Mm. I'd been thinking a lot about God and so on, and I was absolutely convinced that I was a Christian. Uh, a year later, I was in the armed forces, in the Air Force, and that was also a very significant moment for me, going abroad to Egypt and Iraq, and then having to be a Christian in on uh, on RAF base with, uh, we were flying Sabre jets um, out of um, Iraq, Shaiba, um, right on the Persian Gulf. Uh, only a hundred young men my age, 18 to 20, I was 18 at the time, and I found myself actually found opening a little hut and found a chapel in there. 
not used. So I gathered people around, and we started a regular Sunday worship. And I remember the time that might have been a very defining moment in my life. I got back um, from that age of 20, met Eileen, the, the first person I bumped into, literally. And we started on our journey together. So that was the start of it, uh, yeah. Timothy. And I look back now and, and feel quite convinced God was calling me to some form of Christian service. And you served as a, a, a parish curate, right? Yeah. Well, what happened was my education had been badly damaged in those war years. And so I had to go, um, um, I had to do my O levels and A levels. I did them very quickly indeed, because I think when you're ambitious, and ambition is a very good thing. I've never been ambitious for the wrong reason. I've never wor worried about status or anything like that. I simply wanted to serve God. And for me, I think the best job in the world is to be in the Anglican tradition of parish priest or in the Baptist tradition, a minister of the gospel, just to serve people. And that was my, and still remains, my ambition. Now, you spend a lot of your life in the theological education. You've been a, a tutor, a teacher, a professor, uh, a principal. Uh, talk about theological education in particular, how it impacted you and what you would say to those of us who are trying to do that now. Yes, well, my career or ministry really separates into two. First of all, parish priest and, and certainly an exciting ministry up in Durham where we revolutionized the church, turned it inside out and became a wonderful time of ministry and revival. And you wrote a book about that, right? The, yeah, the church in the, the church in the marketplace. And yeah. you still get it on uh -huh. Amazon. Actually, yeah. surprise of that. <laughs> it was written a long time ago. Yeah. But you're right. Um, I did spend time. Uh, again, that was an accident. Uh, you see, what happened? I did my PhD and I was in, a, I was in the, a parish in, Islington, a tough area. It was great. I loved it. One day, uh, Morris Wood, who became Bishop of Norwich, phoned my vicar and said, look, I'm in need of someone to teach because so-and-so has gone down sick. So I found myself in my second year of, of my ministry there, going to the college one day a week and teaching. Mm -hmm. Three years later, he invited me um, there full-time. So I served on three theological colleges and another one up in Durham, and became, as you said, principal of Trinity Theological College and had a, a wonderful time. Now, one of the things you've done, um, I want to ask you what this means. You've had many honors and you've held many positions in your life, uh, including being a distinguished fellow of the Library of Congress in the United States. That's remarkable, I think. But the one I wanted to ask you about is that you are an honorary liveryman of the Worshipful Company of Scriveners. What is that? <laughs> well, to scriven is to write. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of those um, strange clubs go back right into the medieval thing. You had the merchant ventures, for example, you've got all the trades formed a kind of a livery club in London. So you had the goldsmiths, you had them. You had them all, and sort the, of like the guilds of the the guilds. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's the same word, livery company guild, and the guild of scriveners. They were the people who did a lot of the writing in the medieval period. I mean, there were a lot of people in business and so on who probably couldn't read or write. So you need a, a scrivener to do the writing for you. To some degree, it overlaps with law as well. And so I became a freeman of the city of London. 
and uh, therefore a scrivener, and I was given my own quill pen, and I've got it in my little study, and uh, there's no ink, (laughs) (laughs) and I don't think I want to use it very much. These days we've moved from pen to uh, iPads, haven't we? But um, that's that's the history of the Scrivener. That's wonderful. And, of course, you've been a Scrivener. You've written a number of books that uh, have blessed the church in many ways, including uh, your own memoir, your autobiography, yeah. Know the Truth, yes. and, and you're the only archbishop who has done such a thing. Yes, that's right. Um, I was surprised to re- re- realize that, actually, and I, I thought to myself, well, I have a story to tell. I'd rather tell it in my way than get somebody else to do it. Mm. So I rather sort of um, went ahead with that. Um, I was criticized for it, would you believe? But there you go. It's a wonderful read. I've enjoyed and learned a lot about you, but also about the church and the many ways in which you have been involved in the life of the church. You have a quotation in here from a book I don't know called The Spiritual Letters of Father Hewson, in which you he says this, you quote him, The greatest saint is not fit for the service of God, but there is a wise saying that God does not choose what is fit, but he fits what he chooses. Say a little bit about that. That's a wonderful quotation. It's a lovely quotation. I think it's absolutely true of my life and true of my ministry because when I became Archbishop of Canterbury, bearing in mind that there were a certain number of problems I faced. One was I was the youngest Archbishop of Canterbury for 150 years. The second thing um, was I'd only been a bishop two years. I was not, not even sitting in the House of Lords. Mm. So I was actually in a steep learning curve, and um, I, everything was thrown at me. Suddenly you find yourself as Archbishop of Canterbury. You, you're doing five jobs at least. You're a diocesan bishop. You're head of the Church of England. You're, you, have, you are the personal link with the monarchy. You sit in Parliament. You're in charge of ecumenical relationships. You are the leader of interfaith dialogue as well. All these rolled up in one small man. And I remember at the time saying, I'm not worthy of this. And there's a wonderful image. When I was um, enthroned, we call it, in, as Archbishop of Canterbury in 1991, in Canterbury Cathedral, I found that the chair of St. Augustine was too big. I mean, first of all, you almost had to climb into the chair and you could get two people side uh, on either side of me. It was so vast. That became a wonderful metaphor of ministry. The job is too big for you. Therefore, enjoy it. You know, wait upon God to fit you for the job you've got to do. And all the time I found that he was preparing me. For example, I've never loved chairing meetings. Mm -hmm. Suddenly I found myself having to chair dozens of meetings and finding to my astonishment that I rather enjoyed it. (laughs) And I was quite good at it. And I remember saying to myself, it's not my doing. It's the good Lord. That's wonderful. Shaping yeah. me, fitting me for the task. That's great. Now, you mentioned uh, Augustine. Of course, some of our listeners will think immediately of St. Augustine of Hippo. But, of course, you're referring to a different Augustine. Tell us a little bit about him and the whole Anglican tradition, yeah, which yeah. I think, uh, you know, your office and the Church of England is maybe the oldest living institution in Great Britain, long oh, before yes. the Parliament or oh, yes. the long. Bank of England or anything like that. that. And long before United Monarchy. 
It was not something I wanted to actually correct Her Majesty on very often, but, I mean, she, she's wise enough to know that. Yes, basically, Augustine came from the um, Italian hills of Rome. He was a Benedictine monk. He was the prior, and uh, Pope Gregory the Great, who had met these blonde Haired boys and girls in the slave markets of Rome, so fond of them. Where did they come from? Came from the land of the Angles, and he sent missionaries there. And he sent, he sent poor old Augustine, a very shy monk, and forty other monks to start a ministry in England. And it's an, an, an amazing story because Augustine went fearfully. In fact, actually, he got halfway across France, then rather funked it and went back. Mm. And the Pope said, no, no, you've set your hand to the plow, go. He went, and the first thing that happened was so amazing. You see, I, my theory is that he actually was going to be sent to London, which was then the centre. What happened was he got as far as Canterbury, and what he found this... There was already a church there, and Queen Bertha uh, was there. She is a worshipping Christian, and she made him welcome. They settled down in Canterbury. So the interesting thing, what would have happened if he'd gone on to London and my office would have been the Archbishop of London, not, not Canterbury? But for, from that, there's a, another wonderful the spiritual message. Augustine was so worried about and fearful of these angry and blue-coated, painted Anglos. But when he got there, of course, he found the welcome. I've always seen this as the, an idea of prevenient grace, hmm. that actually, and I'm, I know I'm speaking to clergy and lay people here, if we take on a new ministry, you often find actually that God has prepared the way for you. So there was Bertha already a Christian in Canterbury. So the fearful, worried Augustine found a welcome, and so the, the mission of Augustine was set. And, of course, it got stronger and stronger and spread throughout the land. When you uh, preach today in Hodges Chapel here at Beeson, you, you will see above in our chapel dome a likeness of Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury during the time of the Reformation. Uh, say a little bit about the Reformation and its impact on the life of Anglicanism. Now, there are some branches of the Anglican community who want to resist the idea that um, the Church of England and the Anglican Communion is a Reformation communion, but there's no denying it. We were born in the Reformation. We were shaped, actually, through the teaching of Martin Luther and Cranmer and Latimer and Ridley, other great heroes, saints, we might say, of the Anglican communion and certainly the Church of England. And um, Thomas Cranmer is one of my heroes. He was an ordinary, fallible person like you and me, uh, but it was someone who was given wonderful gifts, the gift of liturgy, and we owe so much that his liturgies have survived to our, to our present day. Again, a rather fearful man, a shy man, um, he, we owe him so much. And one of the things, um, Timothy, um, some years ago, that when I became Archbishop of Canterbury, we had some decorators in to prepare the, the place for us, and they found a hidden door. It hadn't been open probably for hundreds of years, and that door took it from our living room straight into the chapel where he wrote most 
of the prayer book. Wow. So that was terrific. Wow. And the amazing. door is still there, <laughs> although it's, it's, it's covered over, of course. And I remember often I went into that little room and hoped I might get some inspiration from the presence. So you stand in a evangelical and reformational tradition, but you've also been very involved in the quest for Christian unity in ecumenism, and particularly with the Church of Rome. Uh, Talk about where that is today and how we as Christians who may not be uh, in, in a high ecclesial office but nonetheless can be engaged in this quest. Ecumenism for me is core ad core, heart to heart. It's the finding Jesus Christ in one another. I think it was the great Maltman who said, the nearer we come to Christ, the nearer we come together. And that for me is ecumenism of seeing the reality of faith as uh, we sit across the table. I see a fellow Christian in you, and I found this with all traditions. What is at the heart of our ecumenism? It's a Trinitarian faith. We can't deny that. It's accepting Jesus Christ as Savior. And in my journey of faith, you see, the first vicar I had um, Edward Porter Conway Patterson, Pitpat, we called him when I was a boy of 16. I used to get very worried about Pitpat because he was a wonderful Protestant missionary person who he seemed to suggest he hated the Church of Rome. But I knew what he was getting at. He saw Rome in its attitude to Reformation issues as a great opponent of the gospel. But, of course, Rome has changed over the years. There have been so many changes that we can't look at the Church of Rome in quite the same way as we once did. And I think that I, so I had the great joy as Archbishop of Canterbury meeting John Paul II many times. We prayed together in his private chapel, um, Eileen particularly, also because um, she found him a fascinating man. So the three of us would meet together. So the journey of faith continues to this day, and we've actually made matters a lot worse these days. We know that Rome has created problems for Anglicans and other Christian groups. We have created problems through the ordination of women, and particularly on the issue of homosexuality is a very big barrier. But the deep roots are there. We've got to build on them. We mustn't give up hoping um, I, do, I don't think there's going to be any visible unity in my lifetime, um, but we have to carry on loving one another, and particularly because mission is at stake here. We're so divided, and it's a bad image of what the gospel requires from us all. So it's a vital and urgent issue, and the journey must continue. Now, the Church of England is one church within a wider Anglican communion. Some 80 million, I think, persons affiliated with that, maybe more now, around the world. Um, and the, the Archbishop of Canterbury is the head of the Anglican communion. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that uh, reality? What is the Anglican communion and your own perspective on where it is today? Well, sadly, the communion is no longer a communion. I think we're a fellowship of churches more than anything else, um, probably more like the Lutheran Federation of Churches than a real communion. And that is because what has happened in recent years is the struggle over the issue of um, same-sex marriage and, and so on. And 
sadly, America is very um, central to that and what happened in 2003 with the ordination of Gene Robinson. I, I try to keep out of the church politics these days because I mustn't get in the way of my uh, successors, particularly Justin Warby, who's a very dear friend of mine. But it is a, a real worry. We're not as united as we once were. And sadly, the growing African churches feel very much out of step with the West. The recent decision by Justin um, and the primates to find some modus vivendi is very encouraging indeed. But um, it's difficult to see where we are at the present moment. And I want to encourage people to actually not get focused on what repairs we can do to the <laughs> boat, but it, we've got to make it sailworthy. But more than that, we, we must remember we're in a missionary context these days and we've got to reach out to people. When you were Archbishop of Canterbury, you declared a decade of evangelization for the church. Uh, and uh, Michael Green, I think, a wonderful servant of Christ, was a part of that. Uh, and so this idea of reaching out with the gospel and inviting others to come in. Uh, when I think about the Anglican communion around the world, something like that must be happening in places like Africa and Asia and elsewhere, where there's such a thriving, dynamic spiritual reality within Anglicanism. There is. There is indeed, actually. There's a very sort of honored missionary impulse in Anglicanism. You've only got to think of, um, well, John Wesley, for an example, as um, um, someone who found that spark and so on. The missionary movement, uh, it was the Church Missionary Society, for example, has gone everywhere. Um, the, the point I think uh, I want to encourage Anglicans to embrace is, is to remember that the kingdom of God is far more important than the church. The church will change the kingdom of God and the vision of God will always remain. And what God is doing is doing new things in our day. I I don't uh, get discouraged when I see the church under pressure. If anything, I think these are wonderful days to be alive as a Christian, to reach out to people, to have confidence in the gospel, and to see God at work in lots of ways today. So in England, uh, in recent days, been people have been, the press have been throwing up in the face of the church the issue of decline. The church is declining in numbers. But this is a very superficial way of looking at it. The church in so many ways is very strong. The Diocese of London, for example, is growing. Why is that? Because of gr groups like HTB, Holy Trinity Brompton, at the Alpha Course. In the diocese where I am, which is Oxford diocese, I look around from where I am, we have growing congregations. Um, and so there are many, many encouragements for us. That's wonderful. Uh, we're in the season of Lent, and we're on our way to the cross as Christians to think about what that means, the paschal mystery of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We only have a few minutes, um, but I wonder if you would say something about the spiritual journey toward the cross that we're engaged in in this holy season. I hope I, people forgive me if I say to, to folk now, treat Lent seriously. It's a wonderful season in which to put down your roots. And um, in fact, that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm actually back in Houston in a couple of weeks' time. I'm going to be leading the church there at a, a time of reflection at the season of Lent. 
to do some fresh reading for oneself, and I'd be doing that for myself because you and I know as preachers that we can be feeding other people and, and fail to feed ourselves. So I need to do that for myself and set myself some goals, and I think it's a wonderful opportunity to do that because this is the soil from which mission emerges. It's your own personal walk with God, is your own desire for God, is your own love of God. And as we look for that love and look out into a world which is so broken, so hopeless in many respects, um, and we in the church have got every reason to give people hope and to inspire them to love again, find new ways of living as Christians. So Lent is a season when it's not merely about my spirituality, though that is important, but how can we all grow together to be more effective Christians in the world today? My guest today on the Beeson podcast has been uh, Lord George Carey of Clifton, who is the 103rd Archbishop of Canterbury. Thank you for your visit and for this wonderful conversation. Thank you, Timothy, and blessings on your wonderful school. Thank you. been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.